What's up, everybody? What's going on, everyone? Welcome. Welcome, everybody, to the Artist of Data Science Happy Hour. Super excited to have all of you guys here. Thank you so much for taking time out of your schedules to come hang out with me today. Hope you guys are all doing well. Man, so I just want to start off by saying, dude, like this violence that's been going on against the Asian American community over the last week, that shit is fucked up. I've had many, 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 many bad days in my life, but never once on one of those bad days that I go and start shooting people. Um, let's just call it what it is. Straight up hate crime, straight up um, domestic terrorism. That is not cool. Um, yeah, I just want to start off by saying that. Uh, but thank you guys for being here today and hanging out. Appreciate having all you guys here. We got Joe in the house. We got Kate. Kate, how's it going? Eric. Shantana's here. What's up, everybody? Super excited to have all of you guys here. Um, right on, man. How you guys doing? How's everybody's week been? This is the first uh, office hours that uh, it's been light outside since I've started coming. So that's cool. I yeah. moved to face the window. Oh, yeah. It's great, man. That's that's good lighting you got there. <laughs> it's I got my popcorn harsh, ready. I like it. Oh, I love it. Popcorn. We got the popcorn. We got. I got a little bit of beer. Yeah, you know, just sipping on, sipping on a little, little bit. bit. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. All right. Nice, yeah. I go. mean, it's happy hour, yeah. Joe. What do you well, expect? Happy I mean, I, I'm about to have a beer in a second, so I'm, you know. Nice. So this is he's a, in a different time zone, so we have to, you know. Meet oh yes. yeah. It's four thirty. Yeah. I mean, so this is a local brewery here called Torque Brewery, and they are doing this variety pack, and they don't name the beers at all. They just have uh, different, uh, what are these things called? Different suits from a deck of cards on there. Um, so it should be interesting, uh, but super excited to have all you guys here. We got the waiting room is packed. There's people waiting for me to let them in. So I should probably let them in. And joining us now is Dr. Tom Ives. Right on, man. How you guys doing? What's everybody been up to this week, man? I feel like this week has been going by super, super slow. Wait, I, I just have to confirm. Is that actually Kate Strachney over there? That is. I'm going to choke on my popcorn, man. <laughs> we hit the big time, Harpreet. Oh, yeah. Yes. We got we got proper celebrities in the house today, man. This is great. <laughs> well, I hope you guys had an opportunity to go and vote for your favorite data community content creator. Um, link is always in the show notes. So definitely go check that out and also help us spread the word. Help us um, help us make this thing big, man. I hope you guys could could share this on your own LinkedIn tag, your favorite content creators. And let's make this thing happen, man. Um, Kate, you should also let um, make sure you look at Eric's proposal for presentation because uh, he's got a great presentation idea. So yeah. make sure make sure you get him on on to speak for, for uh, the next dedicated conference. We'll take a look. Yes. The next two, three <laughs> weeks is all about going through the 120 speaker submissions and try to align wow. it to industries and all that. So it's it's been fun. Yeah. Wow. Oh, man, we got Greg Kokio in the house. Nice, man. Good to see you, Greg. Antonio, Tor, Akshay, Joe. What's up, everybody? Hey, so if anybody has a question, feel free to go ahead and take the floor and go for it. I actually do have a question. I've been thinking about this um, all day today. Um, so I just wanted to talk about some of the negatives of data or like times when we try to use data um, for problems when it's really not appropriate. And maybe it's about ethicalness, maybe it's not. But like, for instance, um, I worked at a company where they really quantified everybody's performance and they would make decisions about like firing people or promoting people based just on those numbers. And I always really hated that and thought that was a really bad way to do business. Um, so that's kind of like an example in my mind of like when 
you know, we're using data too much or it's not like really an appropriate problem to solve with data. Um, and I just kind of was thinking about this idea of like, we're in the data revolution and, um, you know, we're trying to like do the thing where like, if all you have is the hammer, then every problem is a nail kind of thing. So like, what are examples of times when you think that data is not an appropriate solution to the problem? So i get some clarification on that. So the situation you're talking about, is it like they're using metrics to kind of measure performance for people? Um, just in general, any time that like data is being used to solve a problem that maybe it's not appropriate to solve the problem using data. And it could be about like ethical reasons or it could just be a company trying too hard to like shoehorn, you know, data usage into areas where it's not really like appropriate to use, I guess. Yeah. I'd love to hear from Shantana on this. Uh, yeah, I do have strong opinions about solving uh getting the right tools to solve the right problem. Um, so yeah, just a high level for sure. If um, one is trying to uh, force data uh, to solve a, a business problem uh, where it doesn't belong, then uh, that is not a great approach. Um, yeah, for, for any problem solving, I think like the where you start is by understanding the problem, defining it, and sort of outlining what needs to be done. If it happens to be that one of the things that needs to be done is get get data on this X, Y, Z, and then you know analyze it to validate or invalidate some hypothesis or so on and so forth, then that is the approach. If that's not part of the steps, then it's not. Yeah, I definitely agree with you on that one. Tor's got some great comments here as well. He's saying data is never the solution. It can only support the solution. I agree with that as well i guess it just depends on how you're using it right like if you're like there's situations where maybe you don't need to go into like doing super advanced analytics to solve just a trivial problem that's just a waste of resources and time um, but there's probably situations where you're using data to make decisions that can marginalize groups and i don't think that's ever right uh joe what, what do you think well i think you always gotta remember uh, there are it's a good saying by Charlie Munger, uh, Warren Buffett's business partner, like, show me the incentive and I'll show you the outcome. So I think you really need to start at the beginning. Like, why why is it that a company would, would you know, like, or department feel the need to sort of, like, over-metritize its business? That's just a made-up word. Um, but basically, kind of mask every uh, mask everything behind data. Like, what's driving those decision makers to make that decision, right? So you don't need to work backwards from, from the root of, like, why is it that these things are being um, done in the first place. So, yeah, Greg, what do you think? So for me, it's, it's kind of like if you're in a room and you have uh, a lot of anecdotes uh, in a situation and everybody, nobody needs convincing uh, of the next steps, uh, what the next step should be, and nobody needs convincing of whether these anecdotes are verified or not, then data is probably not uh, necessary there. Uh, everybody in the room should agree that the next step should be X, Y, Z. So in this sense, you know, going after data is kind of like a waste of time. And, and especially, you know, business needs drive uh, decision making. So with these adding notes and everybody in the room aligned with what's already been verified, um, it's quite easy to make a decision uh, with everybody in the room on board to, to keep going. So uh, no need to kind of uh, deep dive data in that sense. So that's how I see it. I saw Tor had his uh, hand up. I don't know if he's, yeah, he's still here. Tor, if you want to. Yeah, it was just, just a quick, quick comment on that. For me, when 
many, many years ago, well, 30 years ago, I guess, close to it now, I was working in sales and data was collected, of course, on how you perform and you had targets to meet, etc. It was never used to fire anybody, but it was more used to give you uh, feedback on how you were doing, provide training, uh, etc. But ultimately, of course, if your numbers didn't meet your goals over X amount of period of times, bye-bye, adios, you were fired. <laughs> Simple. <laughs> Looks like Russell had some comments here in the chat that were pretty good if you want to go for Russell. Sure. Evening, everyone. Uh, nice to see uh, so many of you here. Um, so my comment was data is an earth. You know, the, the data itself shouldn't lead anything. Uh, the the problems with it is it, it can be open to interpretation or mistake by the human counterparts to it. So if a human has, say, um, uh, an, a bias that they might push onto it or they just read it inaccurately, then it can lead to um bias or objectivity, uh, sorry, subjectivity in the in the outcome. But the data itself is, you know, it's ones and zeros at the end of the day. It, it can't have emotion. It, it, it is completely inert. Yeah, definitely agree. Can I throw in quick something? Oh, yeah, yeah. yeah, absolutely. Yeah, so my team's doing a project right now um, related to predicting turnover in a certain in a certain company and really so as, as we're talking about it you know building building the model we've discussed that it's important that we use the data that we have ethically you know and maybe there are certain categories of data that we just don't use um, because sure it's available but just because we can doesn't necessarily mean we should and then the other pieces once the model is in existence now is the model going to be used or applied elsewhere for other purposes kind of like you know what we were saying it's like is it created to track progress and then is it then turned to say oh well we know that these kinds of people are going to turn over therefore we're going to be biased in our hiring process against these kinds of people we're not going to hire you know and it just really comes down to that understanding or you know like we talked about of do people do people agree to use for their data to be used in the way that it's going to be used do the people that the data was collected on know how it's going to be used like that's that's respect and then you know i was thinking about this as you were as we were talking about it it's like trust is a big piece but the other piece is like we can't always just trust everybody transparency is the other side when you have a big when you have a big company i i don't trust every big company out there with my data so i want transparency i want to know what they're doing and that it's that it's ethical and it's where somebody who's smarter than me can see it and be a watchdog on it and and just help keep us all honest i mean let me give you an example i used to work um uh, well, I'm not going to name any names, but a product manager once brought up the idea that, oh, since we're doing IoT data, and he was half joking, but I kind of doubt it, actually. Um, we can collect all this data on people that we can use for, it was, it was for workforce analytics, right? Um, so the discussions were like, we could just follow people around and find out where they are at any given time in an office and then come up with productivity metrics. And so what, what, I, what I ended up realizing, you know, and this, this also includes maybe trips to the bathroom, by the way, since that's kind of part of your office. And so, you know, you start taking it to its logical conclusion. You're like, well, now you have people that are uh, tempted, you know, by the use of this new technology to start inventing new metrics for productivity. 
And that's where I think the slippery slope is. It's like, are you doing enough to sufficiently do your job? But like, why do you really care where I'm at in the building? Like, why does that matter at all? Right. And so the thing that I'm going to find really interesting is when, um, you know, with with remote work for the last year um, and the new trackings of maybe certain employees with new technologies and you know, when you get back into this hybrid workforce, uh, you know, workplace, like what that's all going to look like. Because I think to your point, Vivian, it's like, there's just, there just seems to be this temptation to, to throw metrics at everything. Um, and I think it sort of reminds me of the quantified self movement where, you know, you just wear like every fitness tracker known to man or woman all over your body and all over your house. And it's like, what, what are you trying to drive at the end of the day? Like what, what's the behavior trying to drive with these uh you know, all these metrics, right? I mean, I have an Apple watch. I mean, I, I collect all kinds of stuff, but like, what's the behavior you're trying to drive? And unfortunately, it's like I said earlier, it's like, what's the incentive and the outcomes behind these decisions coming from up above? That's what's scary. Like, I don't think, I don't think a lot of stuff should be measured just because you can do it. I think it's kind of dumb, actually. Um, to that point, I'm sorry. I know I'm the one that brought up this question, so I'm going to answer my own question here. Um, but It was making me think of how a lot of times there's companies that are trying to create some kind of like medical test or something um, to test for certain things. Like, say, there was there was one that I found one time that was like testing if you have allergies to a bunch of different things. Um, But in the world of medical tests, it's really only as valuable as you can actually take action about it. So like if there's not really anything to be done with it, then what's really the point? You know, like I used to work at a genetics company and they would test for genetic variants that caused cancer. Um, And it was like a whole thing of like, you know, when they first started of like, okay, that's great that we can like find out that the genetic variants cause cancer, but it's only going to be an approved test if that actually, you know, drives some result of like saving an insurance company money because now people can take different paths for like how to treat their own cancer and stuff like that. So, you know, it, yeah, that's, anyway, I just think that's also something that you see a lot of like tests that find certain things, but then like, so what? Um, If I can hop in for a sec, I'm really sorry, first of all, uh, for answering so generally in the the beginning. I think I missed part of the question because I was still logging off of work. But um, I stand by what I said, which is, you know, problem solving, get the data if you need to and and so on and so forth. But I do want to comment on on this very particular thing as well. I mean, people try to use data to like answer all sorts of questions. And I, I totally think that there a lot of the times they are mis, uh, motivated poorly or motivated by the wrong things. Um, and it's, it's a very slippery slope. I'm not saying that one can absolutely cannot use data to say, you know, how a company should, um, you know, fill its workforce, but it's a, such a delicate uh, question that I would want, you know, someone or a group of people to pay a lot of attention to the decisions that are made around it to mitigate all sorts of biases. Yeah, I wanted to to, to build on what the example Eric pulled, like, right? So you're you're performing analysis on, on customer churns, um, right? If I understood well, or employee churns. Um, and, you know, you have this X month long project but if you know you have a poor culture in your organization, if this is a, your company, you know culture sucks, you know people keep leaving, are you going to wait for the end of that project to take action? Or are you going to use these anecdotes to start taking making decisions? Or are you going to wait for pulling data and things like that? So what can you do now, knowing that you have some clear you know, data like or clear 
you know, events that's showing that people are leaving left and right for reason X, Y, Z. And, and do you wait for that data to be analyzed before you can take action? That's, that's what I wanted to, to, to uh, convey. Right on. Thank you very much. Vivian, did that answer your question? There's a lot of great responses there. Yeah. I just think that this, I was thinking about it and I just wanted to kind of have an interesting discussion about some different ideas. So yeah, this was great. Thanks you guys. always spark off some interesting discussions. <laughs> so thank you very much for, for asking that. So I have, uh, Austin queued up next. Greg, did you want me to add you to the queue as well? Awesome. Uh, so I add Greg to the queue and go ahead, Austin. Then while Austin is asking this question, if anybody else has a question, go ahead, type that out in the chat. I'll put you into the queue. Go for it, Austin. Yeah. So my question is just around end-to-end data projects um, and specifically how to approach planning one. It, it, my thought was initially, do you approach it more like a software project? Because it is kind of that whole pipeline um, or do you apply some kind of framework like the Chris DM or use like Kedro or cookie cutter where this is coming from is um, I do a lot of like personal projects, but I I'm trying to see like what would be a way to possibly introduce things like in uh, like at my company kind of that entrepreneurship uh, trying to help like, all right, let's just maybe do like one thing, start small and then kind of build from there. And so I was trying to figure out like what would make the most sense to uh, kind of help uh, show that business value and kind of get everyone on the same page. Yeah. So Kedro cookie cutters, that's great for like repository structure and just organizing the actual product you know, project itself. But where I always start with any project is just a project analysis plan. Right. And this is just a high level bl- blueprint of what I have planned and what I plan to do and how I plan on going through this project. So that's kind of where I start with. But I'm going to turn this one over to Tom because he's got like this awesome framework that uh, that he's actually done a few presentations on as well. And I really, really like Tom's uh, pipeline for this. Tom, can you share that with us? Well, I was actually wondering if I should announce this if y'all could just keep it here of course i know it's recorded but it's recorded guy th- and shared on the <laughs> it's okay so um guy sankari and i just had our proposal for this same material approved to be a book with pact so i'm we we yeah we are beyond excited and uh we have some uh mega people that are going to help us with the book and uh one of those i i I can't say his name, but his initials are Greg Coquillo. And that's going to be nice to have his input because we know he's the top data scientist student in the world. So that's pretty cool. And then, um, yeah, but um, so how do I put this? I woke up at four this morning to take my son to the airport. And um, then I came back and went to sleep a little bit. Then I got up to be in Giovanna's workshop. So Harpreet. What am I trying to say to you, brother? I'm half brain dead. Could you repeat the question just so I make sure I answer it really well? Yeah, yeah. So what Austin is asking is when we embark on a data science project, how do we go about doing this? How do we go about planning our our route from data to decisions. And I was talking about how you've got this amazing framework, this uh, pipeline that you have that I've seen presented a few times. And I thought that would be a a great thing to do. No, thank you. That that does help. And I thought that's exactly what you were getting at. But it's something that um, I developed more than a couple of years ago. And then I just thought it'd be nice when I was being asked to speak to to teach on this, because I'd sometimes see people, you know, not remain aware of all the 
the steps they should think through. But I mean, what can't you, what can you not learn from watching all of Susan Walsh's great advertising? <laughs> it basically comes down to um, treating the features with love. Well, actually not always love because you do a lot of purging. Um, it, it, it's a set of best practices that we always want to remember to think through. And by the way, it's the spirit of when you Look at great masters in any art form. What do they do? They get really, really, really good at the basics. And it's not to say that once you learn all these automated mechanisms or the pipeline, uh, as some people call it, for uh, developing a machine learning project that's going to go into production. It's not to say that you would always use those, but by having gone through those basics, um, it's hard to go wrong, even when you do something that's super creative and outside of that typical realm. So it it's just a spirit of remembering to um, go through all the steps. So visualization always at every step, you're trying to visualize things. Uh, but you you look at the kinds of data problems you're encountering. Oh, I'm always going to have that in words. So I've got to encode those. Oh, if I really want to get the insights I can always get from linear regression, whether I'm going to put that in production or not, I need to scale these features so that when I look at the weights on linear regression, I can get some insights about which uh, features are most important, but I can back that up with principal component analysis, PCA, to see, hey, of all these features, which are the strongest? I can look for collinearity. By the way, I'm just throwing out examples. I can look for collinearity because I don't want two features competing for the same position on the on the modeling soccer field, so to speak, that causes, in some models, it causes problems and others, it doesn't care. Uh, but it's still good to uh, only retain one of those. And which one do you retain? The one that's got the higher eigenvalue. Again, go back to PCA. And, um, but what are we trying to do? We're trying to get that feature list down to an adequate size. Again, cursive dimensionality, the smaller the model, the better. But I shouldn't say it that way. The, the smaller the model that can do the job adequately, the better. And uh, that gets into your R2 adjusted metric when you get down to it. You, you, you kind of build in a penalization for using too many variables. Why do you want, or too many features? Why do you want to do that? Because if, if, you, if you have even one too many features, now it won't generalize well. It might overfit. Uh, I could go on and on, but then... Um, and I never assume which model is going to work best. There's ways to loop through all the models, loop through the metrics for each model, et cetera. Um, but um, as you can tell, I probably should write a book on this. Anyway, yeah. <laughs> I hope that helps, but we can take it offline and I can uh, I can dig out the link and put it in the chat so people can see the the talk that we gave. Yeah, definitely. Love to hear from some other people, too, because, I mean, everybody has their own way of kind of proceeding through a data project. But I kind of have four distinct phases when I do it. Um, and this is taken from my good friend, Kyle McHugh. And it's like there's define, discover, develop, deploy. So define the problem really clearly, create that project analysis plan, right? And then do discovery. That's the EDA stuff. And then develop a solution and then engineer that solution so that it is deployable. Um, so let's hear from Ben on this 
Okay. Did you know I was talking to you telepathically to call on me? So I'm actually kicking off two projects right now, which I'm super excited about because I haven't done, outside of marketing, I actually haven't done any real like live coding since I joined Did a Robot the last year. And so I'm kicking off two projects. And so I think the important thing is, um, I, I love how timelines, I, I'm not telling people to procrastinate, but it's really good to have timelines. So if you have timelines, things just work. And, and I like projects where they have to work. Um, or I'm swearing and I'm angry. So um, I, I guess the, the only word of advice I'd offer is don't perfect stuff that doesn't need to be perfected because that just slows you down. And so figure out what the least amount you can do is and then figure out a timeline for that and then hold yourself accountable to that timeline and escalate if you're having issues. I, I know that's probably not super helpful because most of my projects that I do are super hacky. Um, anyone that's more experienced with actual projects that go live in the wild and people use. Miser pretty hacky when they first start then i clean them all up and uh, they get better so uh, i saw there's some great comments here from um from angelo i don't see you on my screen anymore angelo are you still here yes you are go for it so uh so my experience is slightly different it's more from uh you know the corporate side and uh, it's to get access to data or to get access to the right data it'll take probably more time than you know getting your personal project up and running and doing kind of the end-to-end. And uh, what I was saying to uh, to Austin is if you want to model uh, if you want to model a personal project um, and end-to-end, I, get, I think the most difficult part is navigating through, you know, uh, the business understanding and trying to define what you're actually solving. Uh, although there must be a project initiated, uh, you know, within the firm, but no one knows. They kind of assign someone as the first point of contact and they let him run until he figures out the rest. And then they might be thinking there's a project going um, and they still haven't got the data. They don't know where the data are coming from. And and people are asking for updates about the projects and how well the project is going. And, you know, you still, you still haven't figured out where the data is. So, it's kind of a get stuck uh, much earlier in the process than actually getting into the in, into the modeling uh, part. Um, yeah, so right on. Thank you, thank you, Angelo. Uh, let's hear from Shantana on this one. Yeah, I think everyone's uh, said really um, awesome stuff, and I think that I just want to marry together uh, what Angelo just said and uh, what Ben and Harp also said. Um, a process is important. Um, be it a team process or a personal process. Um, that's not to say like it has to be by the book, but one thing that uh, I've, I've really tried to work on um, in the past year or so is this idea of thinking like a product manager. It, it's a little bit cliched, but it's true. Um, it, if you can roadmap once you, uh, so Harp talked about coming up with a project analysis, project plan. Once you have that, if you can really roadmap out the steps and what needs to be done, allowing the right amount of time for every stage. So I love EDA. Um, you have to you know, g- give yourself a generous amount of time to really explore the data, understand what it's saying to you. Um, so, you know, as long as that's on the roadmap, then if you've spent five days going down this EDA you know, rabbit hole, uh, you don't have to be lost because you had given yourself five days to do it. Let's give it depending on the size of the uh, project, obviously. Um, and then it's it, for me, it becomes even more important, actually, in the next phase, the model sort of tuning phase, um, because there you can really sort of go off the rails, right? You, you want opt- to optimize everything. You want to, you know, do grid, ser- grid searches for everything. Um, but at the end of the day, you know, time box it because uh, and then the roadmap is also going to help you get to that 
from end to end, right? It's going to get uh, let you have a bare bones product, project, whatever it is, and then you can you know iterate on it. That's fine. So yeah, think like a product manager, roadmap your your process. I'd even add when you're building your model out, like even during the project analysis phase, just call out a baseline model that you intend on using um, just so you have something in place. Uh, I, I typically do this before even like do any type of exploration. I say, I just, you know, having a intuition about, you know, is this regression problem, classification problem, whatever. I just pick a baseline model and try to improve on that. And I'll start with maybe calling out, even before doing any EDA, I'll call out like maybe four or five candidate models that I choose to pick against this baseline and then go back and update my project analysis plan if none of those things work out. Or if I gather or gain new information through the um, exploration phase. Um, dude, actually, I'd love to hear from Antonio on this as well. Uh, sorry, I didn't see you there, Antonio. Um, do you want to chime in? Sure. So Austin was, um, he was talking also about a little bit about like, I think how do you how do you start it at the corporate level? Um, I think what I can add to that is I like to have kind of like low hanging fruit and then have some harder models. So I mean, always depends how tolerable your business is. But when we start a couple projects, some work on the strategy side, and I work with the data scientist. I would like to define like let's say three projects. One, it's like all right, this is definitely going to succeed, and it's going to be very easy win. So that way. if my harder projects fail, everybody's not totally demoralized. So have like short, medium and long-term projects and then kind of easy, medium and hard. So especially like you said, if if your organization is kind of new or they don't trust fully that data science, you don't want to tell them, well, I'm going to work on this thing. And in three to five years, you're going to see results because especially in today's world, you know, everybody moves so fast. People just change different jobs. They get different promotions. And it just, I've noticed that everybody doesn't have that kind of like long-term vision. So kind of balancing that out and making people, um, making people happy in the short, short run is going to keep them motivated, but also it's going to get them even more excited. Right. You kind of give them like a little bite uh, and they're like, Oh, this is, this is good. Let's do more. You know, so that you give them more and more and uh, eventually you want to gain their trust and kind of like, then you become data driven, but it's not going to happen overnight. Right on, man. Thanks for tying us back into that corporate aspect of it. And I think we kind of went off the rails there. Awesome. Did I answer your question? Uh, you're kind of muted there or your microphone's not not working Austin. all right cool i'm just going to assume that it worked uh shout out to some new faces i see here like the dude the coolest name ever max Steele. i guess a fucking cool name with the census fail t-shirt i haven't haven't heard that band since like 2003 that is awesome uh some other new faces nathaniel wise seth, seth chart Brett Butler, you guys, Sutrita, welcome, Eric, Chitonga, right on, man. Happy to see you guys here. If you guys have questions, go ahead, type them out in the chat. Or if you want to just queue up, then uh, let me know. Send me a private message and I'll I'll add you to the queue. Next up, we got Greg. Uh, So uh, a quick question I wanted to ask just for for fun. Um, Do you guys think one day... Um, a post from LinkedIn will be sold through NFT. And what would be that post about? Is it going to be around AI or something of someone of the hype stuff? Uh, and, you know, will it cross, which one would cross a million dollars? I think the one of Ben wrapped in a blanket in the middle of the desert is definitely <laughs> going for a million. Uh, I'm selling it now for 10 bucks. Who wants it? $10. <laughs> 
Venmo me, it's it. yours. <laughs> I, I <Okay>. just want to <laughs> know: was there any was there any real time footage of the Ben in the Woods phase? Yeah, there's a channel to. I'll post a link in the chat. Awesome. I've um, been wanting to ask. So that, so I was a paid extra on the TV series, The Chosen. That's what Antonio's uh, mentioning. Um, one of our investors is an investor there too. Totally random because I'm the least likely person to be on like a Jesus set. I'll go grab that homeless link. I think, Kate, weren't you sharing something recently? It might have just been in a chat where there's something about LinkedIn content creators getting paid. What was that all about? Yeah, I read an article and I don't know how legit this is, but apparently LinkedIn content creators are going to start to make money. I don't know when um, and how much, but it seems like, you know how, um, what do you call it? TikTok is paying their content creators after you hit a certain number of subscribers. Um, Yeah, it sounds like LinkedIn is going to start doing something like that, but also you'll be able to get hired by brands to promote content. So I think they're working on a new feature like that. That's pretty cool. I like that. Kiko thinks it will be a post from Lex Friedman. I don't know, man. Every time I see a Lex Friedman post, it's just a quote of some old dead person. I don't know. He needs to be a little bit more original than that. I know, but look at how many likes and reactions he, he gets on that. Yeah, right. Know, it's I, just, I, it's I just quotes like of dead people all the time. Nobody likes my, anyways, go on. Sorry. Aw, her face. <laughs> You need to hang out with Joe Rogan and do jujitsu, and you'll be cool. Yeah, that's so, one option. Rosso, you got a comment there. I'd love to to hear your thoughts. Uh, what that's about the the NFT stuff? Yeah, yeah. So like you said, it'd be real fun that if the if the first LinkedIn post purchased by NFT was one of the early posts talking about NFT and putting it down. You know, just just saying this is this is crazy. You know, what was it, sixty nine million for a, for an NFT piece of artwork? Uh, you know, just what's going on, and then someone actually buys one of those posts and really I just think that'd be like, just totally so matter, you know? Gotcha. Yeah, I've been really researching uh, this blockchain stuff since our conversation last week. It's really got me fascinated. Um, so I'll be talking to, uh, I can't pronounce his last name. I think it's Rai Chantel, something like that. But he's got a bunch of courses on LinkedIn learning. So I'll be talking to him about um, blockchain and stuff like that. But I forgot this book, which I found interesting, which I want to go grab, but it's uh, Bitcoin Data Analytics for Dummies. Um, I think that could be an interesting intersection of analytics and and blockchain. I've actually been picking up. Um, well, I've been getting deep into Ethereum this week, and I actually started like learning Solidity and smart contracts and stuff. It's fascinating stuff. Um, but yeah, hopefully, hopefully one of my one of my posts can be sold as an NFT starting business. Twenty five cents. I, I think one that should be sold is is a Andre's post where he said if you have to at if you have to ask how to become a data scientist, you'll never become one. Um, a lot of people were really upset by the posts, but I, I love that one. I, I'm trying to think of like, what are the troll posts? Or maybe a defense post about the open to work. Uh, oh, <laughs> I was making fun of open to work and people said I was a bigot. I was evil and I was sexist just because I said, I don't like the open to work hashtag. Sorry, I, I thought that was funny. Yeah, man, bit of a straw man attack. That's uh, that's not cool, Antonio. Oh, I think maybe it was something like a somebody's young now and they create like they become some billionaire, like the next Jeff, next Jeff Bezos. If you could somehow have their early like college days LinkedIn profile, I think that would be pretty cool. And I was thinking about that because. I was like, if I can, kind of the way people trade like trading cards, if I can buy like an early Jeff Bezos Amazon business card back from when he was like starting out, I mean, I think that would be worth millions of dollars right now or like 
Elon Musk's first resume or something like that. I mean, that would be so sick. I would buy it and hang it up and never sell it. What do you think about like the very first iPhone? Because I have one of those laying around. (laughs) Do you think that would be worth something? I don't know. We have to do some data digging and see how many are still in use because I work for a telecom and you'd be surprised how many people use ancient phones still. (laughs) Kate still rocks a beeper. Makiko wants the wants the ethereum miners to release their hold on nvidia um gpus and that's a good point because it, it would to... help all of us you know all so of us get dollar to... bill from warren buffett <laughs> that's cool it's gonna be an nft <laughs> I, i've got an idea for y'all so what you do is you buy the previous gens gpus and you put them in a mining rig and now you have a super ml trainer <laughs> That's basically what uh, Paper Space Gradient and all those other guys did, right? Is that they bought up all the cheaper GPUs, got stuck with it, NVIDIA came out with better ones, and now they're like, oh, we're going to just use it to build our free tiers and then, you know, get people locked in and then sell them on the more expensive ones once they, you know, have all their models living there. So I think that's basically what they did. Uh, Questions from anybody else? Shout out to Avery Smith in the room. Avery, good to see you here. Um, Also, Robert Robinson. Good to see you here as well, my friend. Um, if anybody wants to take the floor with a question, go for it. I'll go yeah, for it. Absolutely. So uh, I've been uh, looking recently um, at, I'm doing some research on kind of uh, data data challenges, but that's across the so the spectrum of, where, you know, whether you're working on data science, data analytics, data management, or product management. So I guess my question to, you know, each one of you sort of sees it from their own personal kind of uh, role in their workplace. What What is the biggest challenge that if you could solve, you know, with a magic wand or the biggest challenge that keeps you up at night would literally transform uh, not necessarily your role, but your contribution would kind of make make problems go away and sort of you, you, you would see huge value add in what's happening and kind of add perspective. What's the one thing that if you could change that would transform completely the picture in what you do? Let's hear from a let's hear from from Ben on this one. I apologize. I was trying to answer a Slack really quick before I forget. Yeah. Can you nope. state the question in like one or two sentences? I won't do that again. I'm sorry. Yeah, no, no, no problem. So Angela's asking if there's one thing that you can change about the culture or environment, I guess, of your of your works. To make your life easier, what would it be? Did I, did I oh. get that right, Angelo? Or yeah, not not necessarily culture or anything. It could be kind of a you know you couldn't get access to the data, or uh, it could be a culture, data culture, or it could be a tech problem or anything. The yeah. one thing that could would really transform what you do and how you want to achieve things, and maybe for your clients as well. Yeah. I, I think for me personally, the one thing, uh, and I think about this a lot through my career, is what are the activities I do that I'm I'm overqualified for? But this, this is everyone on the call. Like, what do you do during the day that high school you could do? And if high school you could do it, why are you doing it? And so when you work for a bigger company, you can hire those resources out. So I think that's the constant thing I'm thinking about is what are the activities that you are uniquely... But I guess that's a question back for the group. Do you have a superpower that you haven't been able to run with? Or do you have something that you're uniquely suited to help your business, but you're stuck doing some mundane things that you should not be doing. And so that, that's what I care about the most is how do I stop doing things I shouldn't be doing? And a big part of that is hiring. You hire the right people. You tell your boss, you work with them. Does anyone else deal with this stuff where they're like high school me could do this? And I, I don't wouldn't say anything necessarily that's like high school me could do. High school me just 
was an idiot. Could not well, it, that, that's essentially what I'm saying. I'm saying like an idiot can do this. And so an idiot can do this. And can we bring this into like junior talents or yeah. someone else where? Well, not necessarily answer that, that question, but I, I like my thing is statistics and like, you know, machine learning and classical machine learning, things like that. But I'm in a position now where I have to help develop a data strategy for this massive organization. And it's like, dude, I've never done this before. So I'm like reading books and trying to figure out how I'm going to make this happen from nothing. And my company is massive. It's got like, it's a company made up of like 13 or 14 other small companies and trying to get all of that together, come up with a data management strategy, a data strategy, like this shit is difficult, man. Like it's not, it's not easy. Um, and if I can, and if, if I can somehow just make the data just fall into order somehow so I can get back to doing statistics and machine learning. Like I'd be the happiest guy on earth. But I realize that this is a, a skill that is important to have that not a lot of data scientists actually get to, to work on. So it's like I'm able to clouds in the dirt type of thing, right? Like doing this data strategy is like way up here, high level. And the machine learning and statistics stuff is like the dirt getting getting dirty with the data. So um, I don't know if that made sense, but that's what I, I do. I bet there's people on this call that can help out where they've already, like maybe even I'm thinking of you, Antonio, or other people where they've, they've been there before. They've had to like revamp strategy or, or pool resources and fix silos. And like, I'm sure there's people on this call that have had to fix things yeah. um, across an org. But I, I like what you're bringing up because that's something that high school you can't do. And so I, I hate when I get stuck with a high school me workload that distracts from the things I actually want to be doing. Yeah. Uh, well, let's hear from Antonio on this one. And then if anybody else wants to chime in after Antonio, um, just send me a message. I'll, I'll call on you after that. Okay, so is this more about the data strategy or more about the high school you? Well, let's, let's, <laughs> let's try to answer uh, Angelo's original question. And then if Angelo wants to hear about data strategy, I know I do. Um, then we can go into that. So Angelo, um, I was listening the whole time, but is it, is your question around the high school you? That was my it's reaction. About what, okay. sorry, it, it's more about what you see in your environment and your kind of data world, what you see the biggest talents and what would you kind of, uh, you know, if you if you removed one of these challenges, what would be the impact for your world? I, I think this is, well, is communication, honestly. The 95% of the problems I see are related to the communication rather than technology. Um, a lot of the projects I work on is across different departments and just getting people to agree on something. Um, whether that is terminology or just, um, I mean, sometimes it's the same thing as talking. Like, for example, uh, I would figure out that two different groups or three different groups are all talking to the same vendor, AI vendor, let's say. They're all doing it in separately. They're all paying a separate price. They're all, they're not getting that. If you if you all talk at the same time, right, you're going to have one solution. It's going to be a lot cheaper. And it's just exponential cost, so much more cost for for the for the company. Another thing is we're trying to build a, a data product, and this data product is very similar needs for three or four different groups. And um, people will be like, "Well, who owns it? Or why does that person get to say how this column is named?" For example, um, a lot of times because. So my kind of group is new and a lot of these 
people have been working together for like 10 years, let's say. There's a lot of history that goes behind it. So sometimes like five years ago, I gave this person data and maybe I gave them access to the table and they never touched that table or they messed up something. And I'm like, this was five years ago, you know? So I, it's just silly things like that, that like, as Ben says, like even high school, you should be able to do. But when you when you look at it, you're like, oh, my God, if people can just communicate, like listen to each other and meet halfway. I think so many problems in data and I'm honestly just in, in life, too, would be it would be solved. And sorry that it's not like a technology answer, but I always go back to the communication. Yeah, no, the, it's interesting. The one, uh, you work for a big, big corporate. Or, yeah, big corporation. That almost sounds like a, almost sounds like a procurement. Uh, the two, two things, one kind of uh, siloed uh, or siloed departments, organizations, and then not kind of group level procurement uh governance to actually make sure that, you know, if if a department is using a vendor for XYZ reasons, then that's available to the other departments in the organization. Right. Yeah. And a lot of these, the big corporations who are older, um, they have, they've been existing for like a hundred years. It's, yeah, it's the silos. Silos is the, is the problem, but honestly, there it's, in theory, there's a lot of easier ways to solve it. But once you start digging into it, uh, it's not that easy. Uh, it's not, yeah. but, but it's fun. It's fun. Cool. Thank you. Let's hear from uh, Avery. And then after Avery, we'll hear from Shantana. Avery, we are unable to hear you. All right. Um, we'll go to Shantana, then we'll come back to uh, Avery after he sorts out the tech. Sure. Yeah. Um, yeah, I think a lot of the discussion is around uh, setting up processes and delegating roles appropriately, which I fully agree with. That's extremely important. I think uh, on top of that, for me, if I had a magic wand, I work at a small-ish uh, startup, less than 100 people, um, I would get... <laughs> I would get documentation on um, all of our choices, all of the systems and, and services that people have, have put up. Um, because, I mean, even tech debt is, you know, you can deal with it as long as you understand where it comes from, what drove those choices at the time. So just absolutely not just documentation and code, but documentation. And then also like a... Uh, you know, the documentation have, has to be organized because it is a huge, and this is again, going back to, I guess, high school me, it's a huge waste of time to have to go through, you know, the Google suite and then the Confluence suite and, you know, all of these things. So, yeah, it's not a data science answer, but uh, yeah, that's that's my one thing. If you can somehow just have all that information like beamed into your brain so you don't have to go do all the digging yourself, like that would be, yeah. that would save so much time. Um, let's hear Avery. How's your your setup going? You, you tell me. Can you hear me now? Yes. Okay. Great. Sorry. Yeah. Sorry about that. Um, yeah. Uh, I just as a data scientist, I struggle with deploying things online. Like I always say, data science is kind of like uh, you know, in the Grinch when he's like, oh, "Solve world hunger, tell nobody." I feel like that's kind of data science sometimes. It's like, oh, I made the world's best classification app or I can predict something super well. And everyone's like, oh, that's great. Like, how do I get access to it? And it's like, oh, it's on a Jupyter notebook on my local machine. And it's like, oh, okay. <laughs> that's not useful to anyone if you keep it to yourself. And so that's where you like, you get into like machine learning ops or data engineering and you need to deploy it and share it with other people. And I stink at that. I am no good at that. And so I was saying in the chat earlier, that's why people like, like Joe exist and, you know, other people who 
are good at uh, machine learning and, and or operations and, and data engineering. And that's why softwares exist, like data robot, to make that interest more more easy. But I just want like a magic wand that just makes that happen and then it's done. Just just put it on the blockchain of the Docker Nettys and have the K8s do all the orchestra. I don't know. Uh, Mickey, what about you? I saw you put something in the chat. Yeah, I think the three kind of top like issues I think about are uh, number one, like educating, communicating non-data people. Um, on like what what does what what does like machine learning look at scale look like? Um, I and then I think the the other two people have mentioned comments, ML ops, and documentation. I think that's already been covered. But in terms of like educating, communicating, um, I mean this is something that came up really sort of recently and sort of ties into that roadmap question of like how do you come up with a strategic roadmap right for a longer term vision for companies? And to me, it's it's really been a struggle because I think so as data or data science or ML people, we sort of take a lot of this learnings for granted, you know, but for example, for an early stage startup that I was working on, um, a lot of the struggle around, you know, uh, setting up infrastructure, um, figuring out the tools, getting funding, figuring out how we allocate that funding, and even figuring out like, how do we allocate our time? It was very challenging because essentially like, first you have to explain to someone, well, what does like a typical machine learning process look like? Ignoring the scale part, right? Just ignoring it. Why do you need to do certain steps? And then you have to layer on, okay, this is what we need to do at scale. And then you have to layer on other sort of conversations like around privacy privacy and like ops or things like that. So, you know, there's so much data science machine learning material out there. A lot of times it's written from the perspective of either you're a practitioner, um, you're like a manager. And, you know, if it is targeted towards like executives or leaders, it's usually kind of selling hype and kind of doing some like high level defining and I've kind of yet to find like a practical resource that combines the like, this is sort of like what you need to know, especially with regards to the practical information of like what tools you actually need um, and sort of what are some of the options. Like I think full stack deep learning comes like the closest, but even then it's like really, it's really kind of targeted still to like machine, like practitioners and like managers or directors of technical teams. And that's really been my struggle in every company I've worked at, which is if you are trying to like come up with a roadmap for like a year long process and you kind of have to like milestone it. Or if if your business partner does not understand what that process is, that they don't understand what those milestones are, then you're pretty much going to get prioritization switch like basically like every quarter. Like every quarter, I think we had like 25% of our like projects either had to be like pushed back or just were taken off the roadmap. Um, I, either because in part of it could be that they weren't scoped correctly. You know, maybe they weren't in fact answering the key business question that they needed to. And that happens a lot, right? We all get really excited with our tools and our little like, you know, our little science projects in the corner. Um, but I think a good chunk of it was that we on like the data science or machine learning side had assumed that our business partners kind of like knew exactly what they were talking about. One, we should have sort of thought about the like, you know, you don't know what you don't know, right? So I think if there was some kind of tool or resource that wasn't one of those like really boring, like educational seminars you go through, like, you know, in corporate, right? Um, that was like practical, was kind of like the bridge. I think it would help a lot. It would, it would help on like, you know, even like the day-to-day just not having to kind of re-explain like, why do you do this? Why do you do that? So, I mean, I think that's been one of my sort of biggest challenges. I don't think you 
Mickey, uh, let's hear from Tor and then Russell. And if anybody else has questions, go ahead and let me know in the chat and I'll add you to the queue right now. The queue is empty. Uh, so go for it, Tor. Yeah, I'm just uh, listening. This is quite interesting because technically one of the reasons why I'm joining in on this group is to kind of try and learn and get a better understanding of data science and data programming and all the things that then analytics and all these things have been done. But for me, we're talking about somebody's mentioning the silos and that create problems. To me, silos in themselves is not a problem. It's the communication between the silos. And that can basically refer to anything. I mean, it's like uh, as a manager for one silo, you are not understanding the other silo and therefore you're not able to communicate. Language barriers. Language barriers in the sense that um, the, the communication between, if you don't speak a common language, then you have greater problems in solving the problems or greater issues in solving anything. So for me, like APIs, that is a way of communicating between two silos technically. But communicating with management, communicating with the technical personnel, et cetera, these are very common problems, not just in data science, I'm sure. Uh, personally, I've had the same thing. Working as a business controller, you have to communicate with engineering people, your management, your CFO, many different people, and conveying and communicating with them require different languages. And this is really where I think the key is in an organization or a project is that you get to a common understanding before you actually start attacking. And to do that, you ask stupid questions. Um, I call them stupid questions because very often people are not comfortable asking questions because they think they may look stupid or they're high schoolers or whatever it is. So if you have it, I what I do on meetings, etc., I ask the stupid questions. Even if I know the answer, I'll still ask those questions um, so that I can benefit or maybe somebody else in the room can benefit from it. Uh, all these terms and terminologies that are being thrown around, EDN and Python and all these, okay, as by having joined this now over a month or two, um, you know, I go and I start reading about Python. I start, now I'm starting to understand what you're talking about. But in the beginning, it was Greek. I had absolutely no idea what you guys were talking about. And there's still a lot of items. So, and the recommendation I have here, if you use a term, EDN or some other term, add on and explain what it is. Because this is how you educate people. Get used to, when you use the three-letter term, then add what it is. Because it will, people will not ask. They think that uh, they're stupid or they don't know. So this would be a good step. And that is, in my mind, a magic wand for training, educating people around you and your team and your organization. Yeah, absolutely. Love that. I usually preface all my questions with that are dumb questions. Like, this is a dumb question, but I'm going to ask it anyways. <laughs> and then, you know, it's just, they've got nothing to, to, to complain about because I warned them it was dumb. Uh, Russell, I see a lot of great comments in the chat here. So after Russell, if anybody wants to uh, take the floor with the question, go for it. Okay, I've thrown quite a lot of... Uh comments in there anyone particular you were looking for, for more elaboration on well just to uh just to unlock the comments from the the chat and so that they're on the, sure. okay. on the audio um frantically scrolling back up to see what i've said now um <laughs> so yeah so I, I 
I think the main one from from my experience, uh, one of the biggest challenges in in large organisations is the conflation of what an individual wants and what needs to be done. So trying to separate the vanity of a person's opinion of what should be done versus what the best thing to be done is, and that can be as um, as straightforward as a you know binary decision: this should be in or it shouldn't be in, or as onerous as a you know change that color by you know a, a couple of shades of hue for for better um uh, better continuity on the page etc those types of things i find can be real uh, kind of time sinks trying to to get to the bottom of those decisions if people are not able to separate their own you know vain perspective um from from the product that we're producing um so yeah i've wasted a lot of time on that um yeah and i've said a couple of things more recently but i'm, I'm sure there's been far more comments so so happy to, to listen to others in the meantime thank you thank you very much russell yeah and, and everybody listening on the audio don't worry i will link to the chat because there's a lot of good stuff happening in the chat so if anybody has a question um definitely go for it take the floor uh, jennifer what's up i see you not much just a happy to have a great friday with you guys yes absolutely good to have you here does anybody miss dave lingers as much as i do i haven't seen that guy in like almost a month man where's he been i have a theory about him you know how he looks so much like sean bean and every time sean bean appears in a movie you know he's gonna die i'm beginning <laughs> to think that david langer died i can't know he didn't die he's still posting yes it, it, it could have been or is he scheduled. Hmm. No, he's fine. Yeah. We're going to be doing mentioned. a show actually uh, next week, I think. So the week after. Yeah. yeah. Nobody has mentioned the evil empire or the free lunch theorem in weeks. And I miss that too. Yes. That's true. I have a, I have a question. Yeah, go for it. So we, we, we hear about a lot of hype in AI ML and uh, Tom, you can, you can say, you know, transformers, um, you, you know, you talk about that and I, here are important they are. What do you guys think would be the next breakthrough? You know, something like the hype of, I don't know, uh, when Neural Network came in and blew people's minds or whatever it is, um, became a hype. What do you think is the next wave? You know, is it going to be existing tools? They're going to pile them up kind of in a creative way and then make it look like the big next thing that people will start talking about the next five years or what are your thoughts? Ethereum and blockchain for real. Like this is honestly the future. And if we can find an intersection, like while the, while this thing is still emerging, if we can find an intersection to take our data science skills and combine it with, with whatever blockchain and Ethereum, like there could be some unique opportunities for not only just personal research, but just opportunities that we could seize for ourselves and an entrepreneurial type of space, or just doing cool stuff for our companies. Um, Cause I'm all in on this, this Ethereum thing. And, you know, I mean, obviously I got a book for dummies. I'm not a dummy, but this, this is going to be interesting. I'm, I'm really excited to dig into this. Um, I'd love to hear what everybody else has to say. Um, I'll go. I think you hit it on the head, Greg, but I'm not surprised you do better research in this space than all the other data scientists put together. But I, yeah, I think it's going to be something cool like... Uh, ensemble transformers, but I would guess the transformers are going to be smaller, easily trainable on a single GPU or not, but it's going to be the person that figures out how to ensemble train them well. That's, that's to me, that'll be a significant breakthrough, but not the last breakthrough. I was talking yesterday with Vin, there was no Vin, um, but he brought up some cool stuff about causal. I think uh, he's pretty bullish on it. And the more I started thinking about it, I think that's, 
that's a that's an interesting field, um, especially from the operational aspect of it. Like how you how are you going to productionize causal models? Um, it's a bit different. So stay tuned on that. Um, Can you break that down for us? Causal ML um, at a high. I don't know level. too much about it, man. Like uh, I wish I wish I knew more, but I'm not gonna I'm not gonna claim to be an expert yet. Yeah, Give okay. me a couple of days, and I'll read causal ML for dummies, and then I'll you know know all about it. <laughs> it doesn't have anything to do with active learning, does it? Because I, I'm hearing now active learning is something uh, people are starting to talk about now. Um, so it's kind of like training on the fly with live data. And in turn, what you end up doing is being able to train a model with very little amount of data versus, you know, a big batch that you kind of, you know, push through. So active learning is starting to be the conversation nowadays. So I'm, I'm curious to see how this might change things. So I don't know if causal model might have to do anything with that. So I'm going to probably go through and read all the Peter Pearl's books on this and, and uh, probably become more confused about everything in the universe, but it's how it goes. Wait, you say Judea Pearl's books? Is that? Yeah. Okay. Mm -hmm. Anyone in particular? Uh, I mean, he has the popular one, the book of why, but I know he has some others at causal inference and a few others that are a bit more uh, mathy, which I, tend to if i'm into something i tend to go that direction just to nerd out more so, nice yeah stay tuned because because i don't have enough other stuff going on yeah so. yes hey harpreet i yeah. do i wanted to encourage you that i think oh, how do i put the um ethereum is awesome by the way because you can use it for so much more than just another cryptocurrency i'm really glad you're going after that one yeah this idea of smart contracts and and just a blockchain where you can just to run any programming language on. I think that's awesome. So I've definitely been enjoying learning Solidity. It's been, been quite fun. Vivian, I saw you unmuted. So if you want to chime in, definitely go for it. After, yeah. Yeah. Then after Vivian, let's hear from uh, let's hear from Shantana Mikiko. Well, I didn't look too much into this, but just earlier this week, I saw the news that Facebook like was training some algorithm using photos that it like labeled the data like for them and i thought that was a cool idea i didn't again i didn't look that much into it of like how they did that but you know you're talking about the self-supervised the self-supervised uh model yeah they like collected like a billion images or something and they were trying to with the goal of trying to get an algorithm to label the images for them so that then they could like do you know classification so you know the goal of like trying to find some way to like get computers to label the data for us instead of having to have humans do it and i thought that was a really cool idea yeah the way i understood this one is kind of like the way i read it somebody might tell me different so this self-supervised learning that facebook put out is kind of like a, a model that kind of you know do a internal check kind of like this is a table. I recognize this is a table. Can I confirm for myself that this is a table kind of thing? Kind of like the idea behind self-supervised learning. Maybe somebody can help me understand the, the idea behind that. Does anybody know anything about self-supervised learning? What was the question? Sorry. Yeah. So self-supervised Vivian learning. talked about, um, I think the acronym is SEER that um, uh, Facebook just released. They trained like billions of pictures and they, they labeled them. But th that model is kind of like based on self-supervised learning. And the way I interpreted that is kind of like a model that kind of teach itself uh, how to classify uh, pictures. And to me, it's kind of like, you know, I, I don't really understand the self-supervised learning concept. Is it one of those, you know, hey, I'm going to learn what a table looks like and I can confirm by myself that it's a table without asking people that it's a table? I I'll just speak up just kind of a beginning here. If you look at what the GPT 
models can do. I would imagine, and, and I, by the way, please, no one be afraid to say bullshit, Tom, on this. But I think because of the way they've trained some of these transformers, they might be able to, at least in the language processing realm, um, begin to create label training data. Well, it makes me wonder, transformers can be applied to vision problems too. Why couldn't they begin to label um, vision for classification data? Um, It's just a thought experiment here, but it seems like that was one of the many reasons why GPT-3 was such a huge breakthrough because it's not it's not a supervised form of learning and yet it can complete thoughts. It can complete assignments. So um, if you can kind of take an extrapolation from that point and think, yeah, I don't think we must be too far from being able to do self-supervised, well, or or machine supervised. How how would we put, I don't really like the way that's called. I think what we're meaning to call it is uh, machine labeled machine labeling of data. Would that be more accurate, Greg? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. see, I'm, I just looked it up, and it's interesting enough. It says that on techslang.com, what is self-supervised learning? According to Jan Lassoon, a computer scientist known for his impressive work in the ML field, the closest we have to self-supervised learning systems are the so-called transformers, which Tom had. Yeah, Jan Lacoon, by the way, the CNN oh. creator. Yeah. Yes. Um, Jan Lacoon, there you go. Um so hopefully that answers your question. We got a question actually uh, queued up from Jeff Keen. And so Jeff, I think you are still here. Let's go to your question. And then for the respondents for this one, I'll go to uh, Shantana and Makiko. Hey, sorry. I didn't, uh, I didn't really have a question. I was just commenting um, for the gentleman that was talking earlier about the stupid questions. You know, I'm, I've been trying to get into data science for two years now. I'm three quarters of the way through a master's degree. And I sit here and I listen to this, uh, this show, this podcast. And I just like, I feel like an idiot 80% of the time. And I feel like it's just such an incredibly broad field that sometimes like it would benefit from some, I don't know, some better stratification of, you know, levels of technical. I think it was three weeks ago, you guys were talking about technical ability and the word technical ability has lost all meaning to me. Because I've learned to write some Python, I've learned Tableau, I've learned some other things. So in my mind, I'm now technical, but I listen to you all talk and it's like, no, I'm, I'm, still, I'm still high school you. <laughs> so I, I, there's not really a question there. I guess it's more just a comment on the field of data science and how broad it is um, and how difficult it is to understand from the outside looking in. Yeah, I mean, that's still, I mean... 80% of the time, you're doing better than me. I feel like an idiot 96% of the time sitting here listening to these people talk. So uh, you're better than me. But I think the the thing is when it comes to like technical abilities, it's just a willingness and just being unafraid to want to go and learn the stuff. Um, I think that is the core of, of technical ability for real. Like it's just like, yeah, I don't care if I break this thing. Let me test it out, see what happens. Um, but let's hear from I want to definitely hear from Shantana and Makiko on this, and then we'll go to Greg after that. Yeah, I think technical ability is so vague and broad. And as Makiko points out in the chat, a very context specific. Um, As an example, so we were talking earlier about what are the things that you like enjoy doing or consider part of your job description and what are some of the things that you have to do anyway. Um, A lot of the times I'll get requests, um, you know, from account delivery or whatever for uh, to pull some sort of analytics, right? It might be a quick one. It might be complicated and it's not, you know, part of my job description. 
Um, but the person that I pass it to is a senior director of the company, and uh, they're the director of data and insights. I happen to be um, a machine learning engineer within uh, within engineering, right? And that person is definitely a couple pay, pay grades above me. So the, the point here is that, you know, it's not like beneath me or something. It's just like a different field and someone else's is better suited for it. So yeah, I totally agree that data science is itself is very broad and uh, just figuring out where you want to focus. And, and usually that decision, what will help you make that decision is where your existing skills are. So, you know, just mapping back to something you've already done and some experience you already have, and, and then try to use that to hone in on which part of this world of data science you want to specialize in. Yeah, it's an important point because there's like not one particular skill you can point to and say that that is a, that's, that's the data science skill right there. It, it's a meta skill, right? It's a combination of, of various different skills so definitely definitely like that response thank you shantana let's go to uh, mikiko and then greg sorry which question am i talking am i speaking to yeah, speaking <laughs> to, to jeff's remark about um oh yeah yeah yeah, yeah. i mean like i'm a shit programmer I'm okay admitting it. I'm still learning, um, you know, but uh, when it comes to like technical ability, like first off, it's kind of like, it is very context specific, you know? So if I were, so if I were to try to like interview into like a backend, you know, software engineering team, they would be like, oh man, you're terrible. You're awful. Like you, you don't deserve to have a job in this field. If I were to, you know, interview into like a heavy hardcore research team, um, where it's all like, you know, postdocs who did really smart, super mathy stuff. Um, they'd probably also go, man, you're an idiot. You're a clown. Your code is passable, but bad culture fit, you know? Um, so I think it's just, it's kind of like dating really, you know, like, uh, you know, first off, right. Like the right opportunity has to be right for both of you. It has to be right for the business and it has to be right for you at that moment. And that's usually not, um, it's not a statement as to your value and like core as a person and also what your value add is to like the field and the team. So I would separate that out. And I think the other part too is like technical capability, like it's something that can be worked on. So if we look to sort of like our, you know, like our brother and sister, cousin adjacent fields, right? Like software engineering um, is someone is a front-end web developer are they a terrible de web developer because they don't know like node.js or react mm, probably not um but in that area right it's considered totally acceptable for first off people to have multiple sort of, sort of skill sets technical skill sets and to also display kind of different levels of capability and you know because some people are early in their career some people are later so i mean that's the one thing is that i would sort of like keep in mind that like technical ability is like context specific right um, secondly, you know, where you are now is not where you are going to be like even a year from now. Um, and also that something that does help though in data science is to be really kind of crystal clear on like, what is the next thing you want to work on and develop? Um, because it is kind of like you could boil the ocean. Um, I think it's rather than kind of going like, okay, here are all the skills I need to learn. It's always a question of sort of like, what is the like next bottleneck that is preventing you from like sort of going further? In the in the field um you know so for example if your issue is like modeling then you probably don't need to be working on your sql skills you probably sh and you you don't need to be learning multiple languages you should just pick one language whether it's r python java c plus plus and you should like build models in that area if it's deploying then you can kind of like focus on that you probably don't need to go back all the way to like your eda right as long as you're working on like 
you know, what is this bottleneck that's preventing me from, you know, doing X work and you're sort of crystal clear on like what the work you want to be doing is, um, then it gets easier, you know, but definitely like if you get rejected because of quote unquote technical capability, right. Understand it's a skill. You can keep growing it. It's fine. Right. We're all in different journeys. Um, yeah. And to keep going after that bread. There you go. So that's, Interesting you say that, you know, these skills are context specific. I was talking to Andy Hunt, author of The Pragmatic Programmer, interviewed him earlier this week, and we're talking about the Dreyfus model, which is a spectrum of competence and expertise. And you can be extremely expert at one thing, but not expert at another thing. It sounds quite obvious, but the way he broke it down in the interview is awesome. And he also answered my question, um, which, which was, do I have to be an expert programmer to think like an expert programmer? And he said, no, you don't have to. Um, so that was comforting. So definitely great, great, uh, great insights there. Thank you very much. Greg, I know you wanted to say something. Um, it was just a quick a quick comment for um, Jeff. Uh, I thought I heard you said that you you know Python or something like that, but it feels like you're already comfortable manipulating data and using a tool that not everybody can do. And from, from, from that, I'm sensing a little bit of, you know, um, uh, what do you call imposter, imposter syndrome here uh, that we, we all feel at some point. And I can tell you that you're probably the best place to uh, uh, stay ahead of the pack of people who call themselves or feel like they're technical. And what I can tell you is if you focus on gaining industry knowledge, um, you will be, be so comfortable uh, with tackling what needs to be done in, from a, on the technical side to solve these business problems. So the more business, you know, savvy you are, uh, the better you can communicate with business folks, identify their problems. Then you can work backwards to figure out what are the technical skills that you need to solve them. And with passion, you'll be able to do that for sure. I've sat in rooms with, you know, folks who grilled me on the business side, grilled the other ones on business questions and things like that. And I can tell you the data scientists, the, 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 the SDEs, uh, uh, software development uh, per engineers uh, uh, who stayed ahead of the pack, who were, were those who could absorb those business logics so fast and could figure out, you know, on the fly, what kind of technical solution they could bring to the table so we can all align quickly to uh, uh, tackle a problem. So uh, keep 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 up with the business knowledge, understandings, and you'll be good. There you go, Jeff. You got this. So Avery says specialized with a bunch of exclamation points. Uh, I don't know, man. Like, I'm all about the generalist. Like, I say generalize to stay future-proof and specialize on demand. Yeah, so- I- I, I'm I'm with you. I'm I'm a generalist as as well. But I do think if you're you know you're trying to break into the space and you're nervous about you know finding the right role or or you want to like a really high paying job, I think specializing can help you get there. Because if someone if someone spent like if someone's like already a data scientist or or close to a data scientist and they spent like you know two or three or six months, like mastering, deploying and and data engineering, like they can get a really specialized job in data science. That's, that's pretty high paying. And, and you'd surpass me as a data scientist. Like I, I cannot do that stuff. So yeah, I totally agree that it's, I think it's really fun to be a generalist because I like to try to try to get my hands on everything. And I think I, people think that the, you know, like we talked about data science is really wide. There's that notion of the, the, the full stack data scientist. That's the unicorn. Right. And no one really is that, but it's kind of fun to try to be that. But, um, 
I often think, man, if I just got really good at one thing, that would be cool too. I'd be like the master at that one thing. So it definitely is a, is a trade-off. There's pros and cons. Yeah. Like one thing I'm all about is just becoming the type of person that you cannot go to school to become. So finding these unique intersections of skill sets and getting good at that. And then once you get good at that, try to move on to another unique intersection and just try to get there before other people do. Um, just a quick add. Yeah. Oh. I really like what you just said. Sorry. Oh, I, I, I did not notice that. Yeah. I, I'm always here. I'm just in the closet listening. <laughs> I, I really like what you just said. That really resonated that most of the value in my career has come from things that school never taught me. So I, I think that's a superpower for all of us. What are the things that school can't teach you? Yeah, like running wanted... a climbing shop, right? I mean, seriously, though, I think that experience like put you on a path, Ben, for, you know, into more of like a kind of a technical career, right? So, yeah, just all these skills didn't right. make any sense at the time. Like, yeah, yeah. I was just, just going to add... Um, this is something when my friends that are young enough to be my kids, almost my grandkids ask me, you know, what should I do this? Should I do that? I said, listen, learn the basics, but really master understanding the concepts because you're going to forget most of it, but you can hold on mentally to the concepts. And then once you have the concepts, you can relearn the specifics very fast. And then once you've amassed understanding several concepts, it's not too hard to go off and learn new concepts. But uh, I remember teaching control system design five different semesters at the university level. I had to review it each time before I taught it, but each time I reviewed it, it went faster and faster and faster and I could leverage from old things. But boy, if you focus on the concepts uh, and you get a few concepts mastered, the world's your oyster. And then uh, you guys know too, once you've gotten pretty good at one programming language, it's super easy to pick up a new one. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I agree. When I hire, I tend to wait on like, you know, or center on like your ability to learn how to learn. Like if, if I'm going to, if I'm going to like overweight one skill of anybody, like I work with uh, hire, whatever, it's like, are you good at continuously picking things up and getting really good at it? And that's, that's a skill in itself. So um, like I think some really good resources, Tom, on the mental models aspect, which I think you're kind of touching on, like Charlie Munger, like I mentioned before, he's got a really, there's a really good book. My, my Desert Island book is actually for Charlie's Almanac, which is um, just a book of his talks. And he talks about mental models, the ability to, the need to like basically, you know, there's maybe 90 different mental models out there that you need to master, which is a lot. But once you have those, then you become uh, kind of Yoda-ish, I guess. Yeah, absolutely. So, um, and another good book is Super Thinking. That's that's good book. a good book. Learning how to learn is a huge skill, Russell. You're absolutely right, which is why I interviewed Dr. Barbara Oakley and why the conversation I had with Andy Hunt was heavily geared towards his book, Pragmatic Thinking and Learning. And like to Tom's point, the fundamentals, the basics, dude, I go back to that shit all the time. Um, and just here is proof of how I plan on spending my summer. Like I absolutely hate textbooks. Like I don't do textbooks, but I, I'll fuck with comic books all day. So I got the cartoon guide to microeconomics, cartoon guide to philosophy, <laughs> cartoon guide to physics. And this is all summer reading. Um, and then the same thing with calculus, statistics, and various other concepts, just revisiting the fundamentals and making sure I understand them intuitively and don't lose touch with them um, and just trying to make it fun for myself. So, yeah, I think, I think the only area where like, like, like there's a balance between generals and specialists. I think my, and for everyone that's there, they have to determine kind of like at their particular point in time, right? Like do they diversify versus, you know, like drill down on one thing? 
I think my my number one advice that's been consistent though is never stay married to like one tool because like I've been on like a bunch of these. Um, I mean, you have to balance right like your individual sort of fiduciary you know responsibility to yourself um, with kind of the needs of the industry. Um, but like I've seen some posts right where like. Um, at least like for some of the uh, uh, software developer forums I've been a part of where people are like, oh, you know, um, I, I'm i like, I have these and these skills and I can't get a job. And it's like, and it's like, okay, well, you know, like they've just been married to that like tech stack for like the past 15, 20 years. And then it becomes, it becomes very hard, you know, for them to like sort of do a, a complete 180. And so, you know, on the one hand, like employers are going to say they want like X, Y, Z, um, you know, but I think everyone has a fiduciary responsibility themselves to number one, like still kind of keep up to date with like what the market wants. And if you identify that the market is kind of shifting in terms of skills, you know, it's sort of your responsibility to kind of like be open to that, but also understanding that like, you know, a lot of times when employers put those skills on a list, they're not saying you need to have everything. They're more like saying like, you should have one of like each group, like one of each category, right? Like I have a friend who she's an ML researcher over at Apple. Um, she had never in her life written a single code or a single line of like C++ and Java. She had other languages like in her tool belt. And like, you know, they were like, they hired her and they basically paid for her to go to like, do you like an, a Java C++ course? Um, you know, she's been there for like three, four years, right? So like, there's a lot of companies for whom um, you might get stressed out looking at those job descriptions, job descriptions. But what they're really asking is, is like, do you have experience solving these problems and do you, and working with these mental paradigms, right? Like, if you've worked with C it's probably you can carry over to some of the other like JVM languages relatively easy, easier than if you've only worked with SQL. And same thing, right? Like, if you've worked with like Python, well, I was gonna say you carry over to R, but you know, I, I tried doing both. Uh, it was a rough transition. I know Avery's like shaking his head, like no. <laughs> Right. But that's really the the most important part is like getting, you know, just enough of the skills that you can kind of like go deep on them, learn the concepts, but then also making sure you're still staying open to like what the market is saying in terms of like what we need. Because there is a reason, right? There's a reason why you would use a JVM language versus like a non-JVM language, you know? So I think that's one thing I always say is like, don't like stay absolutely married to a skill set and don't let like the market just, you know, pass you by like 20 years, you know, that was, yeah, I've seen a lot of posts like that recently, unfortunately, due to COVID. So man, such great, great advice, great topics. Um, anybody have any last minute questions, man, this has been, it's always a freaking amazing, amazing Friday with all you guys. Um, any last minute questions before we wrap it up, Tom, I see you're unmuted. No. Oh, oh, no, I I, uh, yeah, no, I'm sorry. I'm, <laughs> I'm brainless at the moment, but I did love the session. Yeah, no, this is great. Uh, thank you guys so much for asking some amazing questions and hanging out. Really appreciate having you guys here. Um, if you guys have a interview coming up and you absolutely positively want to tune into the episode I released on the podcast today with Evan Pellet, we talk about the science of successful interviewing. Uh, unfortunately, my audio was messed up during that, but that's okay because I don't say anything important. He does. So check that interview out. Um, a lot of great insights and, and tips on how to you know, progress through the interview process. Um, don't forget the Data Community Content Creators Award. Please go vote. Please just like share it on LinkedIn. I'd really appreciate it if you guys help us do that. Um, just share that link, spread the word. And don't forget Sunday, I have an office hour uh, sponsored by Comet ML. Um, Comet ML is awesome. Gideon is awesome. He gave away 
um, pretty much had a GPU on the cloud. So Makiko, if you want to get a GPU on Google Collab, uh, check out something I shared earlier. Um, I think it was yesterday or the day before. Can't remember. Um, but yeah, he's hooking up some good cloud compute. I shared a much watch, a must watch video in the chat. It's this young, crazy guy living out in the woods when he was an undergrad. Is that young, crazy guy you, Tom? Oh, no, no, no. no. I'm not a superhuman like this guy. <laughs> You'll have to go watch it to figure it out. It's ben Taylor, Ben Taylor. Uh, homeless college student lives in a tent in the snow. That is what this is called. All right. Uh, this will be shared on the uh, show notes as well for all. Of it's you my favorite Ben, by the way. <laughs> the, awesome. Sorry, I'm so weird, everyone. <laughs> awesome. I, I, I was born this way. No, I love it. This is great. Um, guys, thank you so much for hanging out. See you guys next week. Same time, same place. And for anybody listening that's in Europe, I don't know if you guys do like the time change thing like we do here in North America, but the time had changed. I think we went forward by an hour. So um, sorry if that messed up your guys' schedule, but come an hour earlier or yeah, is it an hour earlier than what you're normally used to? Yes, come an hour earlier than what you're normally used to. All right, guys, take care. Have a good rest of the weekend. Remember, you've got one life on this planet. Why not try to do something big? Cheers, everyone. Thanks for hosting. Yep.